0: Welcome to BioCentury this week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by Simon Fishburne, editor in chief, Steve Austin, Washington editor,
1: Lauren Marts, senior editor,
0: and Stephen Hansen, associate editor. On this week's pod, we've got a new head of CEDAR AACR, everyone's favorite acronym at this time of year. Lauren has continued to dig into data for hot targets and new modalities. Stephen, our man in the UK, joins us to discuss our 2Q Financial Markets Preview and the deal in focus. We look at a pair of Chinese companies and what their deal might mean for a company that's quietly been operating for about 20 years now, Gene Ken. But first, the BioCentury team is prepping for our 21st BioEquity Europe Conference, which will be an all digital event scheduled for May 17th to 19th. BioEquity's Partnering One platform is now open. Register now so you are ready to start scheduling one on one virtual meetings with 120 plus presenting companies selected by the BioCentury team. For more information, please visit bioequityeurope.com. Let's turn to FDA. Steve saw a tweet this morning from Janet Woodcock saying that Patrizia Cavazzoni has been named the permanent head of CEDAR. She's been in the role on an acting basis for about a year now. Steve, what does the move signal?
2: Two words, I think competence and continuity. Patricia has been at an FDA a short time. She joined in 2018 as deputy director for operations at Cedar. She took on the role of acting principal deputy commissioner for a couple of months in 2019, and then went back and took over as acting Cedar director when Janet Woodcock shifted over to Operation Warp Speed to run the therapeutics program there. Patricia Cavazzoni was trained originally as a psychiatrist specializing in mood disorders. She worked in industry first at Lilly for nine years then six months at Sanofi and almost eight years at Pfizer. So she brings a deep understanding of how industry works. She's highly respected by current and former staff in industry. And I think that it's a sigh of relief, I think, for a lot of people that, that she's going to be taking over Cedar.
3: Steve, not to be the skeptic on this, but one question I want to ask is whether there are any controversies shrouding Patricia that would affect her relationship with the industry.
2: Well, look, there isn't anybody who's been active in any leadership position in the world for a couple of decades like she has, who hasn't been involved in what we in the United States call controversies. But I don't think that any of them are going to affect the way that she interacts either with industry or with FDA. The controversies about Patricia Cavazzoni come from her time in industry. She was the head of product safety, both at Pfizer and at Lilly at times when they had products that were controversial and where there was litigation, and she was involved in defending both of those companies. In one case, the courts ruled against the company, or there was a settlement against the company. In another case, the company prevailed. And they're going to be the same people who oppose Janet Woodcock's nomination as permanent FDA commissioner are going to raise questions about Patricia Cappazzoni. They're going to say that she's too close to industry, that FDA needs somebody who's going to be more adversarial, more of a cop on the beat than they imagine that she will be. The main thing about her, I think it's, it's actually too early to know what she's going to do. I'm sure that there are a lot of pundits who are going to come out today and declare with great certainty what her priorities are going to be, what her management style is going to be. The truth is that we don't really know what her priority is going to be, how she's going to manage. For the last year and a few months, she's been managing a CEDAR as acting director on a remote basis. And that's quite a different experience than what's going to be happening going forward when FDA staff goes back and they have a transition to some kind of normal.
3: And one more thing, because obviously the CEDAR director is like one of the most important positions from a regulatory perspective for the biopharma industry at large. We know that cbu is facing an onslaught of cell and gene therapies, and that's what that leadership is going to have to deal with. Are there any things you see on the horizon for the CEDAR director?
2: Well, actually, the scope of activities of what the CEDAR director has to do is, is astounding when you think about it. So it's not just the kind of things that we usually talk about and write about, which is new drug development. It's also generic drugs. It's products like hand sanitizer, it's suntan lotions. She's gonna have to deal with this whole range of very technical and in most cases, controversial issues. I think the most immediate thing that she's going to do is to have some kind of an effort to look at the the COVID experience at Cedar to figure out what went right, what went wrong, what needs to be retained, what needs to be thrown out. And in doing that, that's gonna give her opportunity to implement changes if there are things that she has in mind that she wants to change.
0: Let's stay with Washington here. Bio is rebooting itself. Steve, you spoke with Michelle McMurray-Heath and Jeremy Levin. Your story is Bio 3.0, and it digs into the trade association's plan to expand its scope beyond Washington to connect broadly with the American public. Tell us a bit about their plan.
2: Michelle McMurray-Heath is the CEO and president of BIO. Jeremy Levin is the current chair. And I also spoke with Paul Hastings, who's the vice chair and the incoming chair. He'll be chair starting in June. It it was a very interesting conversation. They talked about BIO's mission in terms that are quite different from the usual kind of button down D.C. Trade Association talk. They said that access to medicines and promoting science are social justice issues. They committed bio to tackling racial inequities, both in access to care and clinical trials and in the biotech industry itself. And they defended their practice of speaking out about controversial issues like immigration and climate change. Those positions reflect the views of many, but not all of the small companies bio represents. But lobbyists and executives at the bigger companies told me that they're skeptical about it. They say bio should stick to a narrower set of issues and should avoid antagonizing members of Congress who may have different views on social issues, but would be staunch allies on issues like drug price controls, things like that. So it's going to be very interesting how it plays out both in Washington, how successful they are, and how it plays out with bio-member companies and whether Dr. McMurray-Heath and Paul Hastings and Jeremy Levin retain the support of the bio-membership for the agenda that they're
0: plotting. Thanks, Steve. We'll be looking out for the fruits of this new initiative. Let's turn to AACR. Lauren, one piece you wrote that's getting a lot of attention is how bispecific constructs are moving beyond T-cell engagers. Now, T-cell engagers have dominated the bispecific antibody scene for at least the past five years. Lauren, how is industry starting to branch out?
1: Yeah, I think people can't get enough of these bispecifics and something really interesting that we saw in the data when we looked at all the bispecifics antibody abstracts was that about half of those abstracts were not focused on T-cell engagers, which I think is really interesting because we're seeing T-cell engagers at every pharma company, all these new biotechs that are popping up. And so a lot of companies are now looking at things like NK cell engagers or gamma delta T cell engagers, things that target a different type of immune cell to a tumor cell to generate a different type of immune response. But even more than that, we're seeing a lot of dual targeting by specific antibodies. And I think what's really interesting is that many of these are targeting two checkpoints. And so the idea is that this might be a way to increase the efficacy of checkpoint inhibitors and find a way for more patients to respond. And then one other thing we're seeing is checkpoint T-cell engaging antibodies that are targeting a checkpoint inhibitor with one arm and that are also targeting a tumor antigen. And this is something that's unique to things like 4 bb which have been pretty toxic as antibodies just targeting 4 bb And so the idea is that maybe You can harness the activity of a checkpoint to the tumor and minimize toxicity. So there are a lot of different constructs that are coming out and gaining in popularity based on the analysis that we've done this year.
3: So Lauren, one question I have about this, because it's extremely interesting and your story really shows which targets they're going against. Many of them seem to be going after the really well-established checkpoints like PD-1s, ctla four couple of them are going after LAG3, OX40, which are among the new crop. How do you expect this to play out? Do you think people are going to have to demonstrate efficacy against a single checkpoint before it becomes part of a bi-specific checkpoint strategy? That's been a conversation really also for combination therapies, right? Can you work as a, mono, a combination therapy if you haven't worked as a mono? So any patterns on what you're seeing emerge?
1: If you talk to a lot of companies in the space, I think they're going to tell you that it makes the most sense in terms of risk to go after validated targets first, especially if you're looking at a new type of modality. But at the end of the day, clinical efficacy is clinical efficacy. A lot of people have also said that with the checkpoint inhibitor space, you don't necessarily need to have monotherapy activity. Some of these are getting advanced with additive activity, but not necessarily monotherapy activity. I think we'll see a lot of activity in the bispecific space with the validated targets, but I think it'll be interesting to see if this is a strategy to bring these newer targets forward. And specifically LAG3, I think because a few weeks ago we did an analysis of the next generation checkpoint targets and a lot of the LAG3 space was not standard maps. They were looking at things like bispecifics and fusion proteins and things like that as a way to possibly get in first with something that's more effective than potentially more effective than a standard math.
3: And one more question. Is anybody looking at these new bispecifics also in the context of combination therapies? So in a way you're going after three things that way.
1: That's a good question. I'm not actually sure. I know that there are definitely bispecific combinations with checkpoint inhibitors and things like that, but I'm not sure if people are actually adding a checkpoint inhibitor on top of a dual targeting by a specific checkpoint inhibitor. But that'll be something interesting to watch for.
4: That was one of the things, Lauren, I was wondering about, because I know with some of the early T-cell engagers, safety was one of the issues that they tended to run into. And so I didn't know if the move to dual checkpoint targeting or something other than CD3 engaging, whether there was a safety advantage there as well, if we've seen that yet, if it's a way of having a better therapeutic window for this sort of modality or whether it's really just more about efficacy.
1: I think the hope is that there will be a better therapeutic window. And we're just seeing the very first data on some of these dual checkpoints coming out. I think there was data from Pyrrhus on just a few patients at AACR. So I think that remains to be seen. But if you're looking at things like NK cell engagers, there are some definite potential safety advantages there because they're less likely to cause the cytokine release syndrome and things like that. We did see some Really positive data from Affamed with the NK-Cell Engagers this weekend. It'll be interesting to see how those play out.
0: They were definitely the big winner in the stock market, at least on Friday. I think their stock jumped up about 20% and that brought them over the $1 billion market cap threshold. And they've been working on these forever now. Isn't that isn't that right, Lauren?
1: Yeah, I think they started with T-Cell Engagers and K-Cell Engagers many years back before many people were even thinking about this type of modality. It's nice to see some positive data coming at this time when it's such a hot area.
0: They were cool before cool was cool. All right, let's turn to the financial markets. Steven, uh, you've spent the past few weeks talking to buy-siders in Europe, the US. Now, your piece that came out has an ominous title, Looking for Signals of a Financing Slowdown. Financing in the first quarter for biotech was white hot, but sector indexes underperformed the broader market. So what are you hearing from the folks that you talk to and what's the data showing you?
4: Well, there was definitely a little more of a cautious tone, I think, heading into the second quarter than what we'd seen last year when the biotech stock market was raging and everyone was just riding along with it. Going into this quarter, there was much more of a sort of feeling of looking out for when things might really start to turn. As you said, biotech indexes have been underperforming, but IPOs are still raging hot. We're still seeing lots of money being raised there. And the one that stood out to me was actually venture. I know venture tends to lag the broader markets, but venture raised nearly double the amount of money, $13.6 billion in the first quarter than we'd seen in any previous first quarter. So while that's still going really hot, investors had what we termed sort of a wall of worry that they were looking at, which ranged from everything from FDA and FTC, so regulatory issues that they were concerned about, to interest rates, to just a run of of bad performance in terms of clinical and regulatory milestones. So there were a lot more things that investors have on the tip of their mind that they think contributed to this sort of downturn. And really the things that they're looking for now are just... Things like fund flows and IPO pricings. That's really what they're going to be keeping a close eye on to see whether some of this financing activity really starts to slow.
3: Stephen, a couple of things. First of all, the party has been so good for so long that I guess to some degree investors have to worry. That's their job Mm. to worry. If they were to be come to you and say, "Ah, I got nothing to worry about. This is all cool. That would be, let's put it extraordinary. I thought a couple of things were interesting in your story. And I would like to actually emphasize for our subscribers that we presented it in a different format this time. We went with a slide deck format, which is something you should keep an eye out for. I think the data pop out a little bit more easily along with the messages. Stephen did a great job with this. But one thing we saw is that doesn't seem to be a lot of concern about FTC shutting down MA. That's one thing that you reported. The other thing is seeing preclinical IPOs as perhaps a canary in the coal mine as a signal that they're watching for when the downturn might come. Do you have any comments on either of those?
4: Yeah. So the preclinical IPO, I think for investors is not something that's all that new. I think that's been something that some buysiders for years have been concerned that they're too early for the markets. And so when you start seeing preclinical IPOs come, that's for some of them, they think, well, the market's getting a bit too hot. And so especially if those deals then start to not work, that's what they think is then, okay, we're getting far too overdone here. That was, I think, more of an issue in the second half last year. We saw a lot of preclinical IPOs in the second half of the year last year that raised a lot of money and did fairly well, at least have done fairly well so far in the, in the aftermarket. It was a continuation in the first quarter. We didn't see as many. I think there were six preclinical IPOs, and most of them are doing still fairly well, but it is definitely something that they're keeping a close eye on. And so I think that, along with some of the maybe non-US, so sort of European IPOs that are coming to NASDAQ. I think those things we'll be watching to see, especially companies that are coming that don't have maybe a classic crossover round or some of the big name crossover investors in them. Those are ones where they're not going to have the IPO fully covered heading into the deal. And so that might give us a better feel for what the appetite really is for these IPOs.
0: And what about the FTC, uh, part of that equation that Simone asked about, Stephen.
4: Most of the investors see it as really potentially an opportunity because most of these investors, they're not investing in the large pharmas where the expectation is the FTC is going to have potentially an impact on your large pharma mergers. They actually think that this could lead to farmers turning their eyes more towards small and mid-cap companies, which is where a lot of these guys like to play. They almost see it as a potentially optimistic move that you could see more bolt-on deals coming if pharmas are turning away from financial engineering deals like BMS Celgene and looking more at deals where they can add a technology or a program to their pipeline.
2: And I would argue that they're wrong, that the FTC is going to be also looking at big pharma acquisitions of small and medium companies and there's going to be a lot more scrutiny of those kinds of acquisitions. They're going to be looking at them from different perspective. They're going to be looking at them from the point of view of whether they have implications for innovation. And that's going to be a concern that's going to go across the industry. It's not going to be limited to big pharma, multi, mega mergers.
4: It could be. And well, I think what it will take is, at least based on the investors I spoke to, is I think it'll probably take one of these... Deals like the Amgen 5 Prime type of deal being challenged by the FTC before I think the alarm bells start to go off. Well, um, well, what about Illumina and Grail? Illumina Grail is one person brought that up, but they said that's slightly different just given the competitive situation that is there, and that you have Illumina who is almost a monopoly in terms of supplying the sequencing technologies to these companies, and then they're buying what is potentially going to be one of the largest players in a space that depends on sequencing technologies. And so it's a little bit different dynamic than a farmer buying a company that has an asset in your normal cancer asset.
3: It's interesting. I've heard both sides of it. I've heard several people say Illumina Grail is an exception or is different from standard bolt-ons within the therapeutic space. I don't know that it changes the innovation argument. We'll see. And then, yeah, we've got one investor saying this isn't going to be a problem. I guess everybody's got their opinions and we don't know until as you say, somebody challenges an actual decision. Hmm. But what I'm hearing is that investors aren't curbing any activity based
4: on no. that possibility. Not yet. And I still don't even think it would curve investments. What it might do is it might take some of the M&A premium out of some names if that were to actually become the case. So you could see a bit of a deflation across some of the small mid-cap names that are seen as potential takeouts. But at least there's no panic buttons being pushed just yet.
0: We'll we'll see what Rebecca Slaughter has to say about that. All right. Well, let's stick with the theme of deals. This week's Deal in Focus, it's a deal between two Shanghai-based companies, IMAB. They're a six-year-old company that's listed on NASDAQ, and a company that, frankly, was new to me, GeneChem. They've been around for about 20 years, and they've been working with research oncologists, helping them run their trials. Now the company is beginning to combine the resources that it's gathered over the years, which include a comprehensive hospital network, the top hospitals in China, and Target and drug discovery capability is an IP around compounds it's discovered to create therapeutic assets. Gene Chem is hoping this deal with IMAB will be one of many to leverage its antibody discovery platform that it's been building all this time. Lauren and I had a chance to speak with Tong Zhang. Now he's a veteran of Merck and Co's BD team. He ran Global BD for Wuxi Apptech. and then he was with CBC, formerly Seabridge, the investment firm. And he said that GeneChem eventually decided that having portfolio deals, such as the one with IMAB, made a lot more sense for them rather than having a series of one-off licensing deals. And Lauren, you had a look at their pipeline and what stood out to you?
1: So they've been focused on antibodies and cell therapies and they have some really interesting novel targets in their pipeline, which stand out from a lot of other companies working in this space in China. And I think what's interesting about this new deal is they haven't worked on bispecifics before. And this is just another example of how bispecifics are everywhere. This gives them some capabilities to leverage their antibody platform and move into that space.
0: Excellent. Bispecifics are everywhere there, there we go. Well, thanks, thanks. We covered a lot of ground this week, guys. Appreciate all the input and look forward to reading your story today, Steve, about the new permanent head of Cedar. Uh, what's Cedar stand for again? The Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Excellent. Sorry, we we're having a little style debate in the background here, as of whether it's cool to say Cedar on first reference or not. You all be the judge. Let me know. And so, ahead- Jeff, go ahead and tell our listeners what CBER is. Center of Biologics. Center for something. Biologics Evaluation something. and Research. <laughs> uh, B is for Biologics. The head this week on biocentry.com, we'll have our story on GeneChem, more from AACR from Lauren, if she's still standing, plus our usual features such as our Emerging Company Profile Series and our Databytes. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to
1: healthcare and education.